Yesterday, an old pastor friend reached out. He said he wanted to talk, had a quick question for me, and I gave him a call, not sure where this was going. I hadn't talked to him in many years. And he said, you know, I was thinking, I remember your dad had a very interesting way of selecting messages. How did he pick the messages that he was going to preach? Well, if you were attending Straight Gate um, for years and heard my father preach, you know that he would select his, his messages for each week's sermon from the previous week's Old Testament reading and New Testament reading. So I explained a little bit of that to him. And you remember that even uh, during Christmas season, my dad would stick to that same kind of schedule, and he'd always seem to have some creative Christmas twist into it. And this really is the challenge of preaching when it comes to the Advent season, to the Christmas season. We have the room beautifully decorated with Christmas decorations, and we're singing Christmas hymns. And always, as I prepare uh, for the Christmas season, I the question says, especially if we're on a series like we are now, should we keep on going or should we call time out? Should we look into some Christmas passages and bring ourselves in to this wonderful season of year? Well, this year, as I reflected on the sermon series that we've been going through in the book of Mark, it became apparent to me I didn't need to pause. I didn't need to call time out because I'm convinced that the next Four sermons that we look at here in the book of Mark by, I suppose, the providence of God, just as we've been going through this book, are really Christmas sermons. Oh, no, not because they focus on the birth of Jesus Christ, but because what Jesus is teaching in his disciples in this ninth chapter of Mark is really goes to the heart of what the Christmas season is really all about. Now, at your first glance, this may seem really odd. Because this morning here in Mark chapter 9, you heard Kelvin Todd read. We read together and we'll look at together the story of what would we call this main theme of what happened. Jesus was transfigured. We would call this the transfiguration when Jesus' face and clothes were glowing with this divine, radiant light. See, how does that connect to Christmas when he was put in a manger and when there was no room for him in the inn and he was birthed by an unwed mother with a suspicious story of his conception? It all sounded very, very shameful. How could that connect to his transfiguration? Well, let's get into that this morning with a message I'm going to call simply the sun transfigured. The sun transfigured. Why, am I convinced, is this really a Christmas message? Well, first we need to start with another preliminary mystery. Look with me at verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. We read this last week. We didn't spend a lot of time understanding it. And he said unto them, Jesus that is, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here, so some of you people that I'm talking to, he said to his disciples and to those that were standing around, which shall not taste of death, that is, they won't die, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, where are we in context? Remember, Jesus has taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a very northern area um, that would be in modern-day Syria, 
and Jesus is teaching things to them during this special time that he has just with them. And he asks, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? And they give him the response. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. You've arisen from the dead. John the Baptist had been killed at the hands of Herod. Now you're John the Baptist returned from the dead. He said, others say that you're Elijah. And we looked at again several weeks ago the idea that Elijah, the priests had known, the scribes had known the Old Testament prophecy that before the Messiah's final judgment of all things, Elijah would come, the great Old Testament prophet, would one day arise again and set things right in preparation for the Messiah. And so these people were saying, well, Jesus is in the prophetic line. He's in the messianic line. This is a big deal. Others said, well, he's just one of the prophets. He's, he's at least a messenger, a spokesperson from God. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up boldly and says, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. And we saw this as kind of a pinnacle, a mountaintop, if you will, in the book of Mark that we've been working up to for eight chapters. Well, you remember then what happens immediately after Jesus begins to teach them what this means for me to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is that I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. And Peter grabs him, if you can picture it almost by the lapels, and he says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let this happen. And Jesus responds to him, get behind me, Satan. You are acting under the influence of Satan himself to try to hinder me from my divine mission and purpose. What a great rise of Peter, and then what a great fall. And then Jesus calls the multitude together, the others that were around him, not just his disciples, and he announces what we looked at last week. Do you want to come after me? Do you want to have a relationship with me? Do you want to know me that here's what it looks like? You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross the cross, as we said last week, what he was saying is, join me on death row with a noose around your neck. That's what he was saying. I'm on death row. There's a noose around my neck. I will die and be rejected. If you want to follow me, you join me on death row with a noose around your neck and follow. And we understood last week that the great call of Jesus Christ to anyone who would come after him is to say, am I worth it? Am I valuable enough to you that you will lose your life here in order to have me? Will you have the noose around your neck? Will you follow me on death row no matter the rejection, no matter the suffering, no matter the loss? The great glory that Jesus was pointing to was his own glory. When he comes, look at verse 38, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And now notice in context here in verse 1, Jesus says, there are some of you that are standing here that are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God come with power, with force. And this passage has utterly flummoxed commentators. There is great disagreement about what on earth was Jesus talking about. Some say, well, he must have been referring to his resurrection and that some of them, i.e. not Judas, Judas never saw the resurrection of Christ. He hung himself. Some of you would see the resurrection. Others say, no, he must be talking about Pentecost 
when the great kingdom of God came in the introduction of the New Testament church and, and thousands of people came in to salvation. Others said, well, it's the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. That's what he meant. Others say, no, this is connected to what comes immediately next, the transfiguration. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the transfiguration. And all of them make sure to note how many days it was after he said those words about people not dying in front of him until they saw the kingdom of God coming with power. They say they tell the number of days after. And so some have said, probably a minority have said, this is relating to the transfiguration. Well, what do you think? What do you think he was talking about? I think we'll try to answer that question, but let's dive into it first. The sun transfigured. We're going to look, first of all, at the marvel of the transfiguration, the marvel of this transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Let's start, shall we, in verse 2, and we'll just work our way through the next several verses, stopping to comment as we go. Verse 2 says, And after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. Now stop there for a minute. He does not take all 12 of his disciples. He takes three. Now little pop quiz. Have we seen any other times in our study in the book of Mark when Jesus separated out these three disciples for a special sight or a special miracle that they saw? Does anyone remember? You know the answer is yes, because I asked it like that. So just say yes, yes, it is, pastor, you got it, and then I'll feel better about the results of the pop quiz. But now, okay, so yes, but when? Well, do you remember in Mark chapter 5 when there was that little girl who had died and they all were laughing at Jesus because Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and Jesus took who? Peter, James, and John, and went in to heal her, not the whole disciple band. And now again, Jesus takes these three for a special privilege up into a high mountain. You say, these guys must have been really special. Well, that could be, but also one commentator points out, I kind of like this. He said, well, maybe it was just that Jesus needed to keep the closest eye on them. <laughs> you know, when I don't let those guys out of my sight. Um, that kind of puts a little bit of a different spin on it. But as a young father, I know exactly what he means, right? I know exactly what he might have been thinking. Well, in any event, he brings these three, kind of his inner circle of disciples, and he goes up into a high mountain. Now, just pause one more minute for that. Who was included in that three? Peter? The guy three days before that made such a fool of himself, that was such a tool of the devil that Jesus turned around and looked at him and the disciples and said, hey, you Satan, get behind me. And now six days later, Jesus is inviting him to partake in this special miracle, one of the most special sights that any human being has ever been privileged to see. I'll just say to you, friends, doesn't that tell you about the forgiveness and the love of Jesus? Sometimes we have a bad week and we mess up and we stumble and we fall and we think, well, there goes my privilege with Jesus. I can't possibly have any blessing this week. I can't possibly have any spiritual fellowship with God. I'm done. I'm dirty this week. And then remember Peter, a guy who seemed to be messing up all the time, and yet Jesus is in forgiveness is drawing him into fellowship with himself. And just know the heart of God. What a wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful thing for, fail, for, for people who fail so often like we do. But notice where they go. They go into a high mountain. He doesn't say which one and we don't know. 
Some people suggest Mount Tabor, which is right just a few miles east to where Jesus grew up in Galilee. Some suggest Mount Hermon, which was closer to Caesarea Philippi. All we know is that it was a high mountain, and they had to ascend up into it. They had to take a little hike to get up into this mountain. And in the book of Luke, we notice in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9, we, we hear that Jesus was praying. He was praying at this time, separated up in this high mountain with his disciples. And let's look at verse number 2 again. And he was transfigured before them. Transfigured. We don't use that word very often. The transfiguration. Well, the Greek word here that is used, and I'm going to say it because you're probably going to understand what it means. The Greek word is metamorpho. You think you got an idea of what that word means? You know what English word that comes, that we get from that? Metamorphosis. Like a butterfly? A butterfly has metamorphosis. That is, it goes from one form, a, a car caterpillar, to another form, a butterfly. And the idea is that word of morphe. Metamorphe. Morphe is form. Meta means to change the form. So you go from one form to another. The idea here is that his figure, his form, was changed in front of them. And now we go along to learn about what that was. Matthew 17 tells us that in this transfiguration, when is this metamorphosis, his face began shining like the sun. You, you, I don't even know how any of us could picture that, right? But you can just imagine a human being with a face that suddenly emitted such a radiant brightness that you'd have to squint to look at it. That's what happened. Now let's look at what Mark tells us happened. And his raiment, his clothing, became shining, exceeding white as snow. Now listen to this. So as no fuller on earth can white them. What on earth is a fuller? He's really just literally saying a fuller is a launderer. It would, he, he's saying literally no dry cleaner on earth could produce clothes this white. No Clorox bleach on earth could make clothes that bright white. So again, picture this. You're there with these three disciples, and you see Jesus' face change from uh, the normal human complexion to suddenly radiating light like it's the sun, and then his clothes become so glistening white that they're just radiating whiteness, radiating brightness. And this is actually what they saw. This is transfiguration. This is metamorphosis. Now you need to understand, friends, I don't know if you've thought this before, but when we think about how this actually happened, we, there's really two things that could have happened. One, maybe you have thought this before. Maybe you have pictured this as like some kind of spotlight shining on Jesus from heaven. As if there was some light that is beaming on him and his face is radiating and his, and his clothes are just alit in this bright white and it's God sending a spotlight down on him from heaven. That is not what's happening here. This is not light shining on Jesus. It's light shining from Jesus. You see the difference? 
This is light that is radiating from him from the inside out. That's the idea of metamorphosis, the word that's used here. It's the change that is internal, the change in form that comes from you. If you could just picture a kind of crude image of this, it's like a light bulb went on inside Jesus. Have you ever seen those Japanese paper lanterns? We lit those off at Tabitha and my wedding over 10 years ago. And we took everyone outside and we had these little paper lanterns and we lit them on fire and we put them off up into the air. And it was this really cool thing. All these, 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 these just um, glowing lanterns going off in the hot air, carrying them up into the sky. It was really fun until Smokey Bear came and said, only you can prevent forest fires. And then it got really awkward. No, I don't think anyone started on fire from that. Um, we were a little bit worried. We had a maybe close call or two. But that's the idea. A Japanese lantern has light inside paper and it just radiates a glow out. And this is what happened. Colossians chapter 2 says that in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I want you to stop and just think about that for a minute. In Jesus dwells the entire fullness of God in bodily form. And at this moment in the transfiguration, that fullness of the Godhead shone out like a light bulb came on within him and his clothes and his skin could no longer contain it and it radiated, nearly blinding everyone who was there. Amazing. The glory of God revealed. Now notice, keep on going. Verse 4. And there appeared unto them Elijah, or Elias, your translation may say, with Moses. Now just a note on that word Elias. It is simply the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Elijah. Our Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Our Greek uh, uh, New Testament, our New Testament is written in Greek. This was just the way these words were translated. When you see Elias, you read Elijah, because that is the meaning. Actually, incidentally, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormon, didn't know that. In his book on Mormon, he presents Elijah and Elias as two separate prophets. And it's just an example of he was a man deceived. He did not truly understand the book of the Bible that he was intending to co-opt for his own purposes. No, this one person, Elias, is Elijah. So we read here, Elias, Elijah came with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now think about this. Not only do they see Jesus radiating the glory of God from the inside shining out, they see the greatest two figures in the Old Testament. What's the, what's the importance of Moses appearing? He said he was the lawgiver. In fact, when Jesus quotes the Old Testament um, in, in, in his preaching, he would just say, Moses said. Because everyone knew Moses was the lawgiver. He was the central figure in the Old Testament covenant of God with the Jewish people. And now Moses, the lawgiver, appears and guess who else does? Elijah. You say, well, what's the, ben what's the... Elijah was the central prophet of God. He was kind of the 
central figure in the prophetic race. Do you remember, remember reading in the New Testament the law and the prophets? Here were their two figureheads. The law, Moses. The prophets, Elijah. And now they are here. By the way, that tells you just as a one point, for those of you who have loved ones who are dead in Christ, they still have consciousness. They, they must have. Because God in his power returned Moses and Elijah in a kind of, of miraculous form to appear to Jesus and to speak with him. Mark doesn't tell us this, but do you know what they were talking about? Luke chapter 9. You can just again write this as a little footnote. What they were talking about was, as our, our translation says, his decease that he should accomplish in Jerusalem. Just one very small footnote that I think is really cool. The Greek word that is used there in Luke chapter 9 for his decease is literally the word exodus. They were talking about his exodus. What an amazing thing, because we think of Moses with the exodus, don't we? And now Moses comes, who had his own exodus, his own departure, and leading the people of God in redemption out of Israel. And now he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, let's talk about your exodus. Let's talk about your departure when you redeem all of God's people and bring them out of the slavery of sin through your death on the cross. I just love that. What an incredible thing this is. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, look with me in verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, notice verse 6. For he wist not, he knew not, that's the idea, what to say, for they were sore afraid. Now, don't you love that Peter is always the first one to speak up? Always? It reminds me of that old saying, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yes. Peter was one who didn't know what it was for better to be remain silent and to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Well, we kind of got to cut them a little bit of slack. They were terrified. I mean, these were guys that knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. They'd already identified him. And now they're confronted with the glory of God radiating out of a human form with the brightness of the sun shining from his face. And two people, how did they recognize Moses and Elijah? I don't know. They knew who they were. I would have been terrified too. They utterly terrified. What an absurd suggestion of Peter. Lord, let's make three tents for him. Maybe we can cut down some branches and make some booze for these, this miraculous event. Didn't make any sense. But this shows the marvel of this transfiguration before them when the glory of God was revealed. Well, let's move ahead to point number two. Not just the marvel of the transfiguration, but the message of the transfiguration. What was the message of this? Well, let's think about this in context. Peter, just six days earlier had said to Jesus, Jesus, you're the Christ. What was he saying? You're the Old Testament Messiah. And now God is stamping that statement with legitimacy. He's saying, you're absolutely right, Peter. Why? Because here's Moses and here's Elijah to confirm for you that this man that you are standing in front of, this man that you have followed, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and all the Old Testament prophets. It was a confirmation from God for Peter, James, and John, that he was indeed the Messiah. But notice also what we hear. Verse 7. 
and there was a cloud that overshadowed them. Another Old Testament picture. You remember the cloud overshadowing the people of Israel. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. This is the son that I love. Hear him. Literally listen to him. The message was not just about that he was the Christ. It was that he was the beloved son. It was God again thundering like he had at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Thundering again, especially for Peter and for James and for John. And sending them a message that this is my son. He bears my glory. And so you listen to him. Friends, do you know what an influence this made? on these disciples, these three who heard it. John chapter one, listen to these words. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What glory do you think he's talking about there? I think he's talking about this glory. We beheld his glory, listen to this, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. Here's what he's saying. The glory that we saw could only come from the Son of God. It could only be one who bore the divine nature of God. In other words, God was confirming to them, he's not just my Messiah. He's not just my fulfill, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is my Son. He is God. But he was doing one other thing for them as well you to just think for one moment what message they were to take in light of what Jesus had been telling them. I want you to turn over to 2 Peter with me because we're going to hear the words of Peter himself, what he wrote, what he took from this event. Now, 2 Peter, if you flip past in your New Testament, past the book of Hebrew, Hebrews, past the book of James, past the book of 1 Peter, you'll get to 2 Peter. If you've gone to 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, you've gone too far. Go back. The second epistle of Peter, and listen to this in chapter 1. Peter writes these words, the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he says, for we, in verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The idea is we haven't followed clever myths. We didn't make this up. When we made known unto you, we declared unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is his, is his place and position. He is Lord. Jesus is his name, his personal name. Christ is his status as the Messiah as the anointed one of God. But listen to this, but were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. If you were to go to England today, you would hear perhaps when the king was there, we would say, your, how do you speak of those who have majesty? You speak of kings. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why? For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard, Paul, Peter saying, I heard it myself when we were with him in the holy mount. You say, what are you getting at? I'm getting at this. 
that God was revealing to them not only that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He was not only revealing and confirming to them that Jesus was the very Son of God, bearing the nature of God. He was revealing again to them that he was the king in God's kingdom with power. Remember where we started this morning? Some of you will not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. And now Peter sees the glory of God radiating from Peter. And this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he said, we saw the majesty of the king coming with power. My opinion is just my opinion. The Bible doesn't tell us clearly. I think Jesus was talking about the transfiguration. I think he was revealing to them the majesty of the kingdom of God with a little glimpse here on earth that those special three came into. So we see the marvel of the transfiguration. We see the message of the transfiguration. And then finally, we see the mystery of the transfiguration. Will you look at this with me? Verse number nine, as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. What a mystery. They didn't even tell the other disciples. These three men kept this secret. Extraordinary transfiguration. Look at verse 10. And they kept that saying with themselves questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. What, is it, what on earth is he talking about that he's going to rise from the dead? They sure didn't get all of it. Look at verse 11. Do you think they understood Jesus' messianic claim from this transfiguration? Of course they did. Look, verse 11. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elijah or Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elijah verily comes first. He is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught, literally be, sought, be put at contempt, be put to shame. But I say unto you, that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. The idea listed there means desired, whatever they wanted, as it is written of him. You say, what's going on here? Jesus is answering their confusion. When they say, how is it that they say Elijah has to come first? Remember the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would come? They said, we get it that you're the Messiah, but where's Elijah? And Jesus is saying, yep, that prophecy is true. And Elijah, in his, the spirit of Elijah, he's already come. Who was that? Matthew 17 makes clear. That was John the Baptist. Jesus was bringing them this understanding of prophecy and saying, yes, someone has already come in that spirit of John the Baptist, of Elijah. It's John the Baptist. And they understood it. You say, what's the mystery? What's the mystery of the transfiguration? Friends, I'm convinced that the mystery of the transfiguration is the mystery of Christmas. Because I want you to come into this remarkable miracle together. Jesus' face radiating, his clothes revealing the glory of God shining out from his innermost being. And suddenly the cloud passes and the voice goes away. And what do they see? They see Jesus only. His face no longer radiated. His clothes no longer shown. Friends, do you know what the great marvel of the transfiguration is? It's not that Jesus' glory was revealed at the transfiguration. The marvel of the transfiguration to me is that it was concealed at all other times. 
The marvel of the transfiguration is not that at one particular day the glory of God emanated shining from him. The more amazing thing to me is that he kept it covered for the rest of his life. The amazing thing to me is not that three people got to see the glory of Jesus Christ shining. The amazing thing is that no more got to see it. And that's why, to me, the marvel of the transfiguration is the marvel of this Christmas season. Friends, when we celebrate Christmas together, the amazing thing is not that there were angels in the heavens proclaiming the birth of Jesus Christ. What's amazing to me is that they weren't there every night he was here on earth. The amazing thing of Christmas to me is not that there was a star coming and shining a spotlight right over the place that, that where he was. What's amazing to me is that star didn't follow him around every day of his blessed existence here on earth. What's amazing to me is that why, not that wise men came from the east sometime after his birth to present to him the riches of mankind. What's amazing to me is that all of humanity weren't presenting him their riches every single day. Why? Because the glory of Christmas is not that the glory of God radiated. It's that the glory of God was concealed. In what was it concealed? It was concealed in the face of a helpless baby who was utterly unprotected to all the elements of the world. The glory of God was concealed in the form of an unwed mother with a scandalous story of conception that no one would have ever believed. Oh yeah, sure, an angel appeared to you and you got impregnated by the Spirit of God. Sure, we've heard that one before. It was a scandal that Mary was an unwed mother giving birth. The glory of God was concealed in that the inn was full and the Son of God would be born where, angel, where animals fed. The glory of God was concealed in that in grinding poverty, Joseph and Mary brought a child into the world. The glory of Christmas is not that the glory of God radiated from this child, but it was rather concealed in humility. You see what's going on in our Christmas story. Philippians 2 says of Jesus, who being in the morphe of God, metamorphe, in the morphe of God, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, literally emptied himself and took upon him the morphe of a servant. The morphe, the form literally of a slave. The glory of Christmas is that the very Son of God with the divine nature of God who radiated the glory of God for all eternity, covered it, veiled it, concealed it, and took on the form of a slave. Now, friends, that just suggests two things for me as we close here. The first part of the Christmas message that we should take from the transfiguration this morning is to glory in the humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ to glory in the fact that he took upon him the form of a slave 
and died for you and for me. I don't think we can ever get away from that glory. I don't think we can ever get away from the glory of God revealed in the humility and the obedience to suffering that Jesus came. And do you know what it means for you? Stop pursuing your own glory. If Jesus concealed the glory of God to humble himself and empty himself for you, it shows me that the Christian life is about humbling myself and emptying myself for him and for others. Not chasing my own glory, but perfectly content for it to be concealed as long as the glory of God is being revealed. But there's another thing here that we can't miss when we come to this Christmas season. Oh, it's easy to look at that humble face of that baby in the manger, to think of the pictures of Jesus, a humble carpenter going about his day in Galilee, and we sometimes forget that the story of Christmas is ultimately still the story of transfiguration. Because that passage we just read that I just quoted for you, who being in the morphe of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, and took upon him the morphe of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, And given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The story of the transfiguration is that his disciples just got a sneak peek. What had been concealed was revealed only for a short period of time and only to a select few. But my friend, that glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be unveiled completely for all eternity. And every knee will bow before it. And every tongue will confess that yes, he is Lord. So this Christmas season... I invite all of us, kneel before the humility of Jesus Christ to conceal the glory of God in the most humble of forms. But don't forget to kneel before the one whose glory you will see in full display, completely unveiled, and for whom that glory will be on display for all eternity. Friend, the story of the transfiguration is the story of Christmas. May it be your story this month as well.